Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist and have a variety of interests. I am interested in healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Ben Mazur to talk about Theranos. Theranos, if you are not aware of that company, this is an American privately held corporation. And at the time, it was touted at a health technology company where they can do like blood tests, a variety of blood tests, just with a finger stick. That's it. And the CEO of that company is Elizabeth Holmes, who um, basically was able to lure investors and politicians to believe in her technology. Well, sure enough, she was then uh, found um, that she was hiding a lot of facts. And John Carreyrou, who is a Wall Street Journal reporter, was able to uncover a lot of truths about what was going on in Theranos and with Elizabeth Holmes. He actually wrote a book called Bad Blood that chronicled everything about what was going on. I read that book a couple of years ago, and probably it was one of the best books I have ever read. If you have not read that book, order it today. Bad Blood, it is just amazing and fascinating. Now, Elizabeth Holmes is facing charges, actually. Um, uh, I can tell you that she is, We, are, you know, this episode I am taping uh, with Ben Mazur, Dr. Mazur, on September 6, 2021, uh, before the trial of Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend, uh, Sonny Balwani, uh, uh, takes place. Uh, both are going to have separate trials. But pretty much uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend, Ramesh Balwani, he goes by Sonny Balwani, they are charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud and nine counts of wire fraud. According to the indictment, the charges stem from allegations that Holmes and Balwani engaged in a multi-million dollar scheme to defraud investors and a separate scheme to defraud doctors and patients. Both schemes involved efforts to promote Theranos, a company found, founded by Holmes and based in Palo Alto, California. Theranos was a private healthcare and life sciences company with the stated mission to revolutionize medical laboratory testing through allegedly innovative methods for drawing blood, testing blood, and interpreting the resulting patient data. So why do I have Ben Mazur on today's show? Because Ben Mazur, as a pathologist and someone who is interested in laboratory medicine, wrote about this several years ago. He wrote about in a in an outlet as well as BMJ blog, and really, I you know I was interested in getting Ben's views. What got him uh, to be also suspicious about the behavior of this company and the products that the company was advertising to actually uh, bring forward and and to patients and to healthcare uh, systems. So, you know, I hope you enjoy the conversation I'm having with uh, Ben. It is rather really important for us to always realize that sometimes when you don't investigate what's actually going on, many companies could go under the radar. So if there are suspicions, we need to really investigate what's going on. And it's really this story with Theranos got me thinking there are probably some other companies that are promising the, the world to patients and to investors and to doctors and so forth. And uh, really, uh, you know, uh, probably they're flying under the radar because they have not really been investigated as uh, much. Well, anyway, uh, before I air the episode that I taped with Ben Mazur, please watch all of the Healthcare Unfiltered episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. Do not forget to subscribe, rate the show, and refer colleagues to the show. You can also visit my website, uh, by the way. Please check it out, chadinabhan.com. Uh, and without further ado, Ben Mazur on Healthcare Unfiltered, discussing Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes.
Well, it's really a pleasure to host uh, a colleague and a co-author that we've written, a, I've written, a well, he wrote the paper. I was his co-author on medical errors, Dr. Ben Mazur, uh, who I am very much looking forward to at some point meeting him in person. I, I have uh, been following his work on social media and certainly uh, a big fan. Uh, and I've asked Ben to come on the show to talk about the Theranos uh, debacle because he has written about it. He has talked about it. I've, written, I've read some of his articles on Theranos. So I thought it would be actually fun to talk about that, especially as the CEO of Theranos is going into trial in the next uh, couple of days. Ben, welcome to the show. And uh, for those who don't know you yet or have not followed your work on social media, maybe a little bit of introduction about yourself and uh, and we get started. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I am uh, an anatomic and clinical pathologist. I'm currently in a fellowship at Yale. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been interested in the Theranos uh, story for a few years now. And um, we, we connected on social media. Uh, we wrote about the idea that our medical errors, the third leading cause of death or not, which has been a very interesting topic. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to kind of dive into this. Thanks, Ben. Ben, I have a question for you. I need to know. So who see, who talks less to patients, pathologists or radiologists? Because you know, Saurabh Jiha may be listening to this. So let's, let's see. Yeah, pr probably pathologists. It depends on the specialty of pathology. We mostly talk to other physicians, which is uh, its own requires this own translation into uh, a different kind of uh, dialect. So yeah. well, thanks for joining me. And I see that you're uh, kind of dressed the part because, uh, you know, uh, in reading about Elizabeth Holmes, who is the CEO of Theranos, she has always worn um, a turtleneck, a black turtleneck with the idea that she wanted to emulate Steve Jobs, the uh, late uh, CEO of Apple. So uh, is that what we're doing here? Yeah, well, I thought, you know, she has a lot of uh, issues with her lab tests and, and supposedly, you know, statements to investors, but you really can't argue with her fashion sense. So I thought I'd at least give her some credit and say, well, you know, it looked good. Um, there just were some issues behind the turtleneck, I guess. Yes. You know, and, and uh, we're going to talk about the book and so forth that John Carreyrou wrote, but it's interesting. I've listened to a couple of her interviews on YouTube, older, older interviews, and then I contrasted what John Carreyrou was saying in the book. And he said, and I can't confirm that, but he said she tried to deepen her voice a little bit or something to make it sound like Steve Jobs or whatever. I don't know if that's true or not. Do you think that's true? It's hard to tell. I mean, people change their voice depending on the you know situation. Uh, I probably should have practiced lowering my voice for the podcast. Unfortunately, this is how I really sound, and I think people are going to believe it given my you know my accent. Hey, but you got the uh, the microphone right. I mean, that's that's good. Yeah, and I also uh, want to thank you because I know we're taping this not only on Labor Day, but also on the Jewish New Year, which I know you celebrate. So I appreciate you taking time of your uh, schedule uh, to do that with us uh, as we delve into the Theranos. I'm going to title this episode, The Theranos Debacle. What do you think? I think it was definitely a debacle. And um, yeah, we'll see how it all pans out. Well, let's get through it. Let's level set. Tell listeners who, to the extent that you know, Theranos, the company, what company that was, and who Elizabeth Holmes was, because she's the chief executive officer, or she was, of that company. And then I want to segue from there to better understand what got you skeptical about this company uh, uh, products that they were offering to the degree that you actually wrote about this in the lay media. Yeah, you know, Theranos was a, a laboratory startup based out of California. And Elizabeth Holmes, I mean, she started the company when she was very young. She dropped out of Stanford. She had this great story about, you know, being afraid of needles and wanting to be able to do laboratory, you know, medical laboratory testing with small amounts of blood. And uh, yeah, it was a great story. And 
starting, I think, around 2013, 2014, they started to really roll this these tests out to the public. And she got a ton of media attention in, all, in a lot of major business publications and in other mainstream publications, very glowing press attention uh, about how innovative this was. And, um, and then around 2015, John Carreyrou, a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, started publishing a series of reports with kind of insider, you know, whistleblower type information saying that the tests weren't working as planned. They were misleading the public. They were misleading investors. Um, And of course, the company refuted all this or they tried to refute it. But eventually, investigators came in from Medicare, from uh, state state regulators, uh, the FDA eventually, and um, through a whole series of actions, they shut the company down. And now she's actually under criminal charges for wire fraud for basically misleading investors about you know whether the testing that they supposedly created actually worked. But what, what that's, the, the test- trial's just starting now. Yeah, what was the testing like? Just like a regular, like if I need like my CBC, like that's what it is, or is there any more sophisticated? They offered hundreds of tests. In theory, they you could run, you know, they you could get hundreds of tests. I think done. I mean, a, a full menu of of you know routine laboratory tests. The issue was, you know, they had this proprietary technology that was supposed to be this kind of like lab in a box technology that you could do a finger prick blood test. And then you could run hundreds of different tests on this little black box that would spit out an answer instead of these huge machines that take up a whole laboratory to run. And so, you know, that was the idea, but it it turned out that they were running most of these tests on uh, routine commercial machines that any lab can buy and run tests on. So, so, but their theory was that like a finger stick, like how folks sometimes check their blood sugar, like you just do a finger stick. And I'll be able to run with a finger stick a whole, you know, list of blood tests, routine and some sophisticated ones as well. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And then, and then, and then it was found that the that they were actually getting that. I mean, they were, with the finger stick though, you don't get really enough blood. I mean, you get just a little bit. So they will put that in a commercial machine. They did a number of different things which caused you know, sort of medical issues and, you know, legal issues. Um, they did have a machine that ran some of the tests through the finger stick blood. You know, they had this special um, container to, to, to collect the tiny amounts of blood. They called like the nanotainer or something like that. There was just, you know, a very small container and uh, they could collect this sort of finger stick minute volumes of blood. Um, but they were also collecting venous blood samples from patients, even though they never really like made that a big part of their story or advertisements, they were collecting routine blood draws. And so some patients would come in and get routine blood draws and are, were surprised because all the marketing was focusing on these little, you know, finger prick containers. So, but they were running some on their new machine, which had quality issues supposedly. And then they were also taking um, some of that minute blood, and they were, according to the Wall Street Journal, they were diluting it to run on routine machines, you know. And so when you start diluting blood samples, you increase the inaccuracy quite a bit. And so it was supposedly causing all sorts of accuracy issues with the actual testing. So they, it they was, like add saline to it, like that, like they with like adding some saline stuff? I don't know what specifically what they added, but yeah, that's the basic idea. Yeah, they would dilute it, right? Because you can't run routine analyzers are based on venous blood draws with a certain volume of blood. And if you don't have that much, they diluted it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then, I mean, me and you have read the book that was written by Jean Carreau, Bad Blood, which, I mean, I, I, I think we both can agree. It's just a really a fascinating ride. I, I, it's just a great- uh, Oh, yeah, it's, it's great. a great book. Yeah, I mean, it's written beautifully and uh, it's like really, a, it's a, what do you call it? like a page flipper, whatever, whatever, page turner, whatever that is. But but tell me from where, I mean, what was it, what John Carrier was writing that made you start thinking deeply about 
the product of the company and the credibility? Or like, how did it come about that you really started um, having a lot of doubts about what they have and, and what led to you writing about it? And when did you write that? Yeah, I wrote a couple pieces a few years ago, and uh, you know, af- after John Carreyrou, you know, sort of exposed all the all the fraud and the and the inaccuracies of the tests. But what interested me in particular was going back and looking at the media attention in retrospect that the company had received, and I'm like, well, how, you know, how did no one ask these kinds of questions before? Because um, I, you know. I, I'm a writer and I, I want to know how we can report things accurately and give the full picture on things. And one thing I kept noticing was that they simply weren't interviewing in these media reports about the company. They weren't interviewing actual experts, which are mostly pathologists or other types of people who specialize in the actual practice of laboratory medicine. Instead, they would interview cardiologists, orthopedic surgeons. They would interview, uh, you know, physicians. Um, They would interview CEOs of hospitals, you know, who of course have an interest in this type of technology, but don't necessarily have any kind of technical expertise uh, to evaluate it. And so I think that to me was like one red flag where it's like, okay, you have someone promising the moon and it's, you know, it's sort of common sense to say if something sounds too good to be true, you should be skeptical. Right. Um, I think that's, I think most people think that way. And yet, um, what you do in that scenario is you're supposed to talk to experts who give you some sense of how realistic this technology is. And they weren't doing that. And you could find pathologists who had written about the company before uh, John Carreyrou, who just as outsiders with no inside knowledge like he had, simply said, here's what I know about laboratory medicine, here's what they're promising. Uh, and it just doesn't make sense to me. So it seemed like there were things that the press could have been doing to catch on to these things beforehand. So that's what I wrote about. How about investors? Like, do you, I mean, usually, I, I guess I can get when the press maybe interviews the wrong people. And goodness, Ben, we are living at times where it's so polarized, where really I don't know, journalism is like, you know, left, uh, left, uh, left the planet. But investors, when they want to, when they put money, they're usually pretty careful and they want their money back. Were they not doing their due diligence? Supposedly they weren't. I mean, you know, Theranos relied so much on keeping things as a trade secret, right? They weren't, you know, they, they, were, pet, they were patenting things, but the main technology was considered a trade secret. Um, so they didn't publish on it. They didn't patented. They'd, you know, I mean, basically they tried to keep the actual fundamental workings of the, of the laboratory testing as secret as they could from everyone, uh, including as far as I can tell investors. And so that was their fallback, right? It was a trade secret. It's confidential. It's innovative. You don't need to know. A lot of investors, you know, from what's been reported, turn them away. You know, they weren't interested. They didn't believe it. They wanted more details. Um, but a huge number of investors did put money into it. So, I mean, crazy. They raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and the company had a valuation of something like $9 billion. She, you know, she became on paper, Elizabeth Holmes, a billionaire. Um, so no, there, there weren't people doing due diligence as far as I could tell. They simply believed a lot of the claims on the other hand, um, you know, she is being accused and the, there's been a lot of reports of essentially, you know, business fraud, right? Making promises she knows aren't true, uh, doctoring financial statements, making revenue projections that, you know, they could know already were not accurate. And so there seemed to have been active deception. So, you know, there's two different parts here. There's you know, did people not ask enough questions, which I'm sure is a big piece of it? Um, and then were they simply lying to people, which is what, of course, you know, the government is accusing her of doing. One of the investors that she was able to secure is Walgreens. Oh, yeah. She had some major investors, you know, um, and the, the whole Walgreens setup is very interesting 
you know, so basically she lobbied uh, the Arizona legislature to allow patients to order their own blood tests and succeeded with that. So um, it was legal for patients to order their own blood tests. They set up this thing with Walgreens. They set up these so-called wellness centers across Arizona and a few other states um, where patients could come in and either get, you know, a prescription blood draw or order their own tests. The cash prices were very low. They were much lower than normal blood tests for, you know, for the same tests, they were much lower prices. They were undercutting people. Um, and so it just seemed like this amazing innovation because, you know, you had this autonomy to order your own tests. The tests were cheaper. You could draw it through this tiny little tube. I mean, you know, it's supposed to be better, faster, cheaper, right? Which is all the things you want. Uh, but of course, it's very hard to do all three of those things at the same time. Uh, it's not that it's impossible. You know, innovation happens in technology all the time, but it didn't seem like there were a lot of people questioning how they could do all three. Why is this so much cheaper? Why is this so much easier? You know, why is this so much more accurate? Uh, and yet no one else has done it before. You know, I, I'll admit, I, I think you brought in that John Carew wrote about this, started writing about this in 015. And I mean, my memory is not serving me right, uh, but I don't believe I actually read about it back in 015. And maybe, I mean, I'm, Let's face it, I'm not really a, an avid subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, obviously others maybe, maybe have. Um, if John did not write about this, were you, like, were you aware of the company as a pathologist? You were in training at the time. Obviously, you're following the, the field of laboratory medicine. So it's kind of like in your world. Was that something that you guys were actually talking about? Forget the Wall Street Journal was, you know, like in oncology, you know, sometimes if we hear of a new drug, a new company, it's something like there's a buzz about. Was there any buzz about in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was in medical school during the early parts of it, um, but, you know, I, I knew I was going to pathology. But, yeah, pathologists raised points, you know, before John Carreyrou um, people absolutely talked about it because, you know, she was supposedly taking on all the big labs. She was taking on all the establishment, you know, the ideas, if, if everything she'd been saying was totally true, totally above board, you know, she would have put all of our labs out of business, right? I mean, it's a huge business threat just from a practical point of view, even if you're not some for-profit, you know, lab, if you work in an academic center, you still want to, you know, have business. And um, so it was a, it was a huge threat. And people were confused because, you know, how is she doing this? It was simply hard to figure out. Um, and so I think the secrecy, there's a couple of things, you know, I think the secrecy really paid off for her and that it's very hard for medical professionals to criticize each other without evidence. I mean, you know, if you suspect some doctor or some company is doing something that may not be right, you know, but it's sort of a gut feeling or it's a hunch or it just doesn't make sense to you but you don't have documents, you don't have hard proof, you don't have any evidence that patients are being hurt. I mean, what are you going to do about it? You know, you can't start going in the media and slandering people or making these terrible accusations without evidence. And so I think people were being responsible and, you know, what are you going to say? And, and of course, you know, Theranos would say, well, they're just competitors. You know, if Quest and LabCorp and these giant companies are skeptical of her, they're just threatened by her. They're afraid of her. Uh, so it's really very powerful because people are already very skeptical of the establishment and of big business. You know, not that lab testing is that big of a business, but it's, you know, there are established markets. And uh, so, you know, people were already ready to believe in a startup. And then the technology was so secret that no one could specifically criticize it. It wasn't a, a scientific paper you could pick apart. And so, what are, what can you say except I'm a little skeptical? Like that seems hard to believe, but that's hardly a big takedown. So well, yeah. what you wrote was essentially, where did you write this? Was it stat? Uh, I wrote a couple articles. I wrote the one about pathologists. I wrote for a now defunct, a great publication called health news review. Yeah. Where they used to basically talk about how to improve you know, medical and health journalism, fabulous uh, website, but it, they ran out of money, I think. So 
Um, yeah, it was a nonprofit. Um, and then I wrote another article about Theranos for the BMJ, for their, their uh, blog. And uh, both of them were like, uh, you told me one of them was about uh, the, the, the uh, journalists or press should have asked pathologists and laboratory medicine versus cardiologists. Yeah. And so what was the other one about? The other one was basically about the kind of grand health promises that Theranos was making and how these kinds of impractical and sometimes dangerous kinds of promises are still being made by plenty of established companies, right? I mean, she's promising to find cancer decades before it's clinically apparent through, you know, drops of blood. I mean, making these broad claims that you could monitor your health constantly through these machines and then, you know, have perfect health and stave off all these diseases. I mean, these are grand claims that are still being made by companies all the time. Now, you know, legitimate companies with real technology, you know, sincerely trying to improve people's health for sure, you know, not fraudulent companies, but this idea that we're just, you know, a few drops of blood away from fixing all our health problems, I think is a very dangerous idea because it imagines healthcare without these kinds of trade-offs, um, without the idea that this kind of extreme testing might have harms or unintended consequences, and that really all we need is technology to improve our health. I think, you know, you probably feel the same way that there's so much to making sure people are healthy and fulfilled and satisfied. It doesn't, it will never just come down to technology, right? The doctor-patient relationship is very important and pr providing people with the tools they need to navigate illness and to cope with illness is a, is a complicated medical and social and economic affair. And that it, you know, some magic box is never going to fix that, right? I mean, you have huge percent portions of this country without health insurance, people with health insurance struggle to afford things. People don't get enough time with their doctor. I mean, it's just not being fixed by a magic box that tests your blood. And um, so I worry about that kind of discourse in medicine. And when were these articles published, Ben? Like year-wise, do you remember? Uh, what were 2018, they I think. I yeah. think they were 2018. Before the book, right? I mean, I think they came before the book. Because the book was, I think, maybe in 2019. I think I probably read the book. I was uh, on a trip to... Uh, yeah, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to... Uh, the reason I ask, I'm trying to think that, um, you know... As when the book came out by John Carew, um, how much of the encounters that he described you were not aware of and you were rather surprised versus, yeah, well, of course I knew that, but you know, I mean, I, I, you know, like, you know what I mean? Well, they describe, I mean, he, he got, that, that's what makes the book so good. He got so much inside information from what she told investors, what uh, laboratory personnel in her labs were concerned about with her quality assurance practices. So he got all sorts of inside information, which seems to have so far been validated by you know the, the federal uh, prosecution. I think it was it was very surprising to hear the details of the of the of the inaccuracies in the laboratory tests and how she was flaunting laboratory regulations. I mean, we have this sort of patchwork, but very uh, extensive system of laboratory regulation in this country. Uh, there's different regulatory authorities. There's Medicare, there's state authorities, there's the FDA, and they each kind of have a slightly different role to play in laboratory regulation. It's one of the most regulated forms of medicine. Um, and yet she slipped through the cracks on this for so many years. I mean, she was practicing for years. She passed inspections. She passed, you know, some, she, I think she had at least one test FDA approved. And of course the government is accusing her of doing that via fraud. Um, and that's kind of what Carrie Rue was talking about where she was manipulating quality control data. She was throwing out, you know, data that, that, that showed the tests weren't working. She kind of hid that. She hid different things from regulators, you know, and, and she lied to uh, investors, you know. I mean, she said things that about how the test was working and what it was doing that she know, knew wasn't true. That's the accusation. To me, it was very interesting to see how someone who, who wants to commit fraud, who wants to mislead people on a grand scale, who's very smart and has a lot of, 
you know, good people working for her can somehow, you know, slip through the cracks and mislead a whole patchwork of regulatory authorities and investors for years. Um, and so you'd hope it would prompt people to question um, how, how these systems work. You know, it, uh, <clears throat> I can't help it but to think I, it makes you wonder whether there are similar theranos in, in other disciplines of medicine that are just slipping through the crack, right? I mean, cardiology, oncology, I mean, who the heck knows? But uh, if she was able to deceive everyone for that long, it makes you just wonder. It makes you just skeptical. Well, there is a lot of medicine that revolves around trust, that revolves around um, believing that, you know, even if someone makes a mistake, it's not done to mislead people, right? Um, you know, that people make mistakes, but they're honest mistakes. And of course, insurers do go after people for insurance fraud pretty regularly. But I think there still is in the medical system this presumption, this accurate, I think, presumption that the vast majority of doctors, vast majority of healthcare systems, do want to provide good care, and that if mistakes are made, they're honest mistakes, they're not fraud, they're not attempting to purposely hurt people and mislead people. And I think that's okay, by and large, because I do think most people are honest, but it does leave this gap that, that if an outsider comes in and is more than willing to take advantage of it, they can get away with it for at least a period of time. I mean, she got caught, right? And so to, uh, uh, yeah. maybe for listeners who have maybe not read the book or not familiar, how did she get caught? What was the, what happened that uh, led the federal government or additional investigators to find something and, and what happened? Can you maybe take us through that? Well, what really prompted was in, internal whistleblowers, you know, one of whom was uh, Tyler Schultz, who is the grandson of uh, George Schultz, who was on the board of directors. So ultimately, you know, what really started this whole train rolling of taking the company down was the grandson of one of the members of the board who worked for the company and um, and saw them kind of flouting quality control processes. He was worried that the tests weren't going to be accurate. He tried to alert Elizabeth Holmes and was sort of rebuffed by the executives at the company. And so he went to regulators who eventually inspected and, you know, gathered this kind of information and shut the company down. Interesting. So the company shut down when? Just uh, we're, we're taping this. Well, it was sort of a, a period where they were, um, they were progressively shutting it down. They were using whatever regulatory authority they had, you know, FDA declared that the, um, that the little nanotainer tube was an unapproved medical device. And so since they hadn't gotten FDA approval for the device, they couldn't use it. So that stopped some of the testing. Then Medicare came in and said, you're violating all these rules. You can't run the lab anymore. That stopped a lot of the testing. And it happened over a period of uh, a year or so, you know, with uh, John Carreyrou writing all this stuff. He chronicled it the whole time. Yeah. But Ben, is she like is she the only one responsible? It's hard for me to believe that there's only one person who could do this. She must have some other folks in the company and outside the company that were in the know. Like it's hard for me to believe that one individual was able to deceive everyone. There must be some collaborators in that freaking debacle. No. Well, you know her her boyfriend at the time and business partner, Sonny Balwani, uh, who was one of the other executives at the company, he's also facing criminal prosecution for wire fraud. So he he has been accused of, you know, basically the same same crimes. They're being tried separately. So her trial is happening right now, and then his trial will happen later. Um, so let's just level and, some, just to make sure listeners know, we're taping this on September 5, September 6, 2021. And the trial is about to start because I think by the time this podcast airs, I think the trial will be well underway, um, but it is unlikely to be concluded. I just want to make sure listeners are aware when we are taping this because we don't really broadcast this live. Yeah. So, so there are other people supposedly responsible. Um, you know, I mean, they, I, I don't know if they've prosecuted anyone else. The only two I've heard about are Elizabeth Holmes and Sunny Bawani, these sort of major executives at the company. So she's being, what is, I mean, 
I'm confused. Like wire fraud is it like she got the money and she transferred the money somewhere. Is that what she was accused of? Like this seems to me this would not have been the charge that I would have expected her to be accused of. Yeah, you know, it's amazing what happens. You know, I mean, Carrie Rue laid out you know hundreds of pages of manipulation from you know of from the company to all sorts of different parties, patients, employees, investors. I mean, regulators. You know. There was all sorts of supposed deception. And yet what's really going down is that supposedly she brought misleading documents and promises and these types of things to investors, which encouraged the investors to invest in the company. They gave her money directly, right? I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars they gave her based on these false promises. And so that constitutes supposedly wire fraud, where she's making these promises She's mailing things, writing things, saying things, you know, emailing things. Um, I don't know all the different media, but she's basically communicating false promises to investors to induce them to invest in her company. And then they did and they were tricked. And that is apparently a criminal offense. So that's wire fraud. Yeah. You know, of course, she was also giving very inaccurate results to patients. And she's also being accused of basically falsely advertising to patients, making promises in kind of just advertisements for the for the lab testing that weren't accurate, you know, saying these tests were all were great and they had all these problems in reality. So supposedly that also constitutes wire fraud. You know, it's not that the patients got hurt necessarily. It's that uh, they were lied to, which is actually what she's getting in legal trouble for. It's hard to believe that patients were not hurt, though, although I'm not sure really we know that. Like if somebody. Well, you know, there's been all this debate back and forth in pretrial motions about how much patient um, patient testimony they can provide at the trial, the prosecutors. Right. Because they have all these patients lined up that said, I got these inaccurate results. It caused me all these problems in my life. It was terrifying. I thought, you know, my cancer had returned. I thought all these terrible things had happened. And of course it was the tests that were inaccurate. So they have all these patients lined up, but, you know, Elizabeth Holmes's lawyers, I suppose, are saying that this is anecdotal data. It doesn't prove the tests were, you know, even, even good labs can have inaccurate test results. It doesn't mean the lab is negligent necessarily if it's some sort of isolated event rather than a systematic problem. Systematic inaccuracies are the problem. And, um, you know, so she's saying patient anecdotes don't prove that. And so they've gotten a lot of um, testimony suppressed, as far as I can recall, of actual patient harm. The issue is more uh, lying to people and misleading people. But, you know, the Wall Street Journal and other publications have come out with videos and articles where they've detailed patients who have come forward with inaccurate results that supposedly, yeah, were really terrifying. You know, lab tests make a difference in people's lives. That's that's why I do this job because you you completely influence their diagnosis. You influence the kind of treatment they're getting. I mean, life and death decisions are made every day on the basis of lab tests that you have to simply trust to be accurate. And so it, it's pretty it's a pretty terrifying scenario if lab tests are going to be like routinely inaccurate. Uh, but I, but that's really not the crux of the trial, is it? So. Yeah. It's very interesting. You know, I mean, part of me thinks when I was reading the book, part of me thinks, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, as I was reading the book, I was thinking that Elizabeth Holmes started meaning well. Like she really wanted to, she had a, you know, a grandiose idea that she wanted, whatever, whether it's because she was scared of blood or not, I really don't know, but she, you know, she wanted to believe that she can actually do that with a single drop of blood or two. And she wanted to believe that so much that when it didn't pan out, she just went down the rabbit hole and she went through the fraud and, and, and so on. And it's like, you know, think of an academician who's doing really an experiment in the lab and it just doesn't work, but he or she wants to believe that experiment is so true. And, they end up fudging data. I mean, I think we know that. We know that thing happens in academic medicine. Is that, is that, was that your impression? Like, I mean, I don't think she, when she was 19 or 20 years old, I don't believe that she was a criminal at the time. I think she was so vested in her own beliefs 
that this is going to actually work, that she just completely lost track of herself uh, of herself and the truth. Yeah, I mean, the reporting says that she really was trying to build this important technology, you know, that would be revolutionary, you know, all these, the small device that could do all these tests. Um, in the beginning, you know, it was, a, it was a scientific affair. She was trying to actually produce these machines. I mean, she hired scientists to do this and was trying to get results and it supposedly wasn't really working. Basically the, they couldn't get the machines to work. They couldn't get, you know, they, she made a lot of big promises and the, the, the machines in reality simply technically couldn't do the things she wanted them to do. Right. Um, and that's where the workarounds came where she bought, where she bought, you know, these commercial machines and modified them and uh, to try to kind of fill in the gaps for the actual failures of the technology. I mean, it's, it didn't, you know, the reporting has showed that it didn't start as a Ponzi scheme. Um, it started as someone trying to build this sort of fanciful technology that seemed impossible. And, you know, had she built it, it would have been very impressive. Um, and it sounds like she sort of made some headway. There, were, there were devices, there were prototype devices, but, um, you know, it just wasn't there yet. You'd have been out of a job maybe if she had made it through. Yeah. We'd all be working for these little machines, I guess. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, you know, in the last uh, 10 minutes, maybe talk about the trial. So the trial is, uh, I, know, I can Google see when it's starting. It's starting next week. So we are on September 5, 6. Uh, is there a date uh, when it starts? I can, we can check it out. They, they, just, uh, they just selected the jury. I'm not sure when the actual trial starts. It should be soon. But they just, yeah, they just selected the jury this week, actually, or last week, yeah. Yeah, so likely it's going to start now. Why? Why is it? Uh, do you? I mean, do you think it's going to take? Um, you were telling me before we went on the air, like three months. You think it takes that long? Uh, that's what there's. That's what the the court proceedings are saying that it, it's expected to last a few months. Um, I don't know. Then I don't know how long deliberations from the jury will last. But and then of course there'll be the second trial with Sunny Balwani. Well, it's a it's a big high profile trial. And they have a lot of evidence to present and a lot of it's very technical. So I imagine that they're going to have to call a lot of expert witnesses and they're going to have to go through a lot of really nuanced details, both about uh, the medical information and the financial information and, and whether these things were truly misleading to investors and to patients. So these trials can last a long time. And of course, they, they have, uh, you know, I'm sure they have very good lawyers and the, you know, federal prosecutors are on the case. So uh and it's, it seems like the media loves this. I mean, there's, there's constant of course, news stories. Of course, there. the ratings, come on, of course. So I, I suspect we'll be getting daily updates about every, you know, the trial. Um, so uh, have you been called to testify then? <laughs> no, they have not called me to testify. I have no involvement in this whatsoever. Yeah. It's, uh, it's much better to stay an outsider where you can have your opinion and um, no one actually cares about your opinion. So you can have whatever opinion you want. You just missed your chance to be in Hollywood. What do you think is going to happen? Let's, uh, let's try to predict. Uh, let's go on the record in predicting what's going to happen. First of all, it doesn't seem like they're going to settle, right? I mean, it seems like it's going to court, although they can settle any time. But, uh, um, you know, it's going to be litigated. There's no settlement, looks like. Well, you know, I mean, she faces significant jail time. This is, um, it's it's very unusual, you know, I mean, for both financial fraud, medical, you know, issues, you know, people don't tend to go to jail for this stuff. They sometimes get huge fines, they get shut down, there's all sorts of penalties, but uh, there's not tons of financial executives and medical people going to jail. So uh, it's really very unusual, um, you know, and I'm sure... Uh, a result of the high profile situation, whether she'll get convicted or not, you know, the, why, why, the, why is she facing, do you know why she might be facing jail time uh, exceptionally? Because it's got to be the, well, it's got to be because of how high profile it is. I mean, you know, the prosecutors are under political pressure, of course, to try to dole out charges that, uh, that the public wants to see done. That's that, that are to the degree that people are upset. And uh, this thing got so much press and so much attention. And it was a huge, I mean, it was a huge fraud, right? I mean, it, it was a huge amount of money and, it, and hundreds of thousands of lab tests um, were performed. So it wasn't like it was, 
you know, small fish. I mean, really, it was an enormous endeavor. So if if the fraud truly is as big as they say it is, then that probably deserves a concordant uh, punishment. Yeah. So let's see. You think she's going to be found guilty or uh, or not guilty? Well, you know, a verdict doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the facts of the case and what happened. Um, oh, come on. So it's hard. It's really hard to predict whether, you know, I, I have no reason to doubt the public reporting on this. Um, there, I don't think there's been any major contradictions where the public reporting has been wildly off base. I'm sure there could be small mistakes. It's always possible. But uh, the fundamentals of the reporting seem to have held up. Uh, and of course, the federal government's gone for it. So, you know, if she did what people said she did, it's pretty awful. Um, but, you know, I think from what I've heard about the trial is a lot of data has gone missing. There was supposedly a lot of data that showed the tests weren't working, that it gave the government, but it was encrypted. And then they didn't give the encryption key to the government. So the government couldn't actually look at this data that supposedly showed the fraud. And, um, and then they lost copies of the, the company, Theranos, lost copies of the original, lost, supposedly. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, so then they don't have a lot of access to data that supposedly would be very material information for showing the tests weren't accurate. Um, and of course, Theranos says, well, had you decrypted it, it would have proved our innocence. And uh, of oh, course, wow. the prosecutor is saying, had we decrypted it, it would have proved your guilt. Uh, but it's encrypted, so who knows? Um, so you're sort of in this between a, a rock and a hard place, or he said, she said, with a lot of this data. And I don't know how the jury is going to interpret that. There is supposed to be a presumption of innocence, of course, in this country, you know. <laughs> You know, in but, the media, uh, there is no presumption of innocence, but yeah, in the courts, yeah, there's supposed makes, to be. It makes you wonder if Sonny would turn, like it makes you wonder because you've got two people going to trial. It makes you wonder if one of them would cooperate against the other for getting lower sentence or something. I see that in the movies all the time, Ben. Yeah, well, supposedly, you know, they've just released a few more court documents that were under seal about the kind of argument that uh, Elizabeth Holmes's lawyers are trying to make. And supposedly they're going to be kind of, she's going to be kind of accusing the boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, of manipulation or sort of being the mastermind uh, of taking advantage of her, you know, and, and I have no idea what their personal relationship was like. I can't comment. But that is, I think, an argument they're going to make, right? And they wanted the trial separate. The trials were originally going to be together because they're accused of the same crimes. They're accused of working together to commit the same crimes, you know, as accomplices. So the trials, I think, historically would be together, uh, but that they successfully argued in court to keep the trial separate. And so that allows them to uh, wage a bit of legal war against each other. So they can accuse each other of things and they're not testifying uh, directly against each other. So um, it does open up some legal maneuvers, the fact that they're having separate trials. And of course, will be you know, much more entertaining for people. I think people love the personal side of this. And um, so you're probably going to get a lot more media attention because now they can make all these personal accusations against each other. I think you got the idea in my brain. I need to bring a lawyer to this show. And I, I think I need to, uh, we need to get to like from the legal aspect. You're, you're just an MD and an MBA. You don't have the JD behind your name. I am one degree short of truly understanding what's going on. That's true. This the the, the manipulation and the 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 complexity of the case. Yeah, you gotta you gotta at least have an MD, MBA, and JD if you're gonna understand this. Yeah, uh, I've always wanted to go to law school. This is not a joke, by the way. It's true. Uh, okay, your prediction, sir: guilty or innocent? You go first. I do think she'll ultimately be found guilty, but. That's just a guess. I, I don't know the, le you know, the legal maneuvering is always very complicated. I think she's going to be acquitted. All right. Well, that, that, this way, one of us is going to be right, unless it's a mistrial and then we could both be wrong. <laughs> so given our track record, it may be a mistrial now. Hey, you know, we've written the medical errors together and we both got like bashed in it. I mean, you still get, I mean, you're the first author, thank God. Like, you know, yeah. Miserable. Well, if anyone asks, they can try us separately and I can say, you know, 
it was all your idea. You yeah, of course. Me. I was young. I was naive. Of course. Uh, okay. You know, who was I to first author this? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, this was really a lot of fun. I think, you know, we're both obviously not, not, not lawyers here, but uh, I think we have a lot of interest in this. And uh, I was just uh, very, really impressed by the fact that you, you've written about this a while back before I even, like, really, it was not on my radar, to be honest. Um, so I thought it would be fun just to bring it to listeners and, and, and so on. And, uh, and we'll see. Maybe we'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll have you back with a lawyer and we'll talk about this some more time. Any last thoughts, uh, Ben? Uh, no, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great chance to plug the idea that pathologists exists and you should talk to us. And if you get a weird lab result or you're not sure how a lab test works or, you know, some young woman comes to you and promises that she could do a bunch of lab tests with a little box that you can't see, uh, you should probably talk to a pathologist and we could probably help you. We can't find you. You guys are like in the basement somewhere. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know, I know where you are. Yeah, we're very hard to find. We get very bad cell reception and we have no windows, but we're still friendly, you know? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like uh, you always look at slides in a microscope. I don't know, do you know how to talk to people? Uh, we try to do it a few times a year, yeah. Like between pathologists and radiologists, I didn't know which one. <laughs> oh, radiologists are obviously the cool one, you know? They got hey, the computers look, and stuff. Look, I'm an oncologist. I am always I, I can't do anything without the pathologist like zero nothing like nothing like cardiologists this could do a few things like i'm completely held hostage always to you guys so i'm always in debt uh, to we have work. you just where we want you exactly <laughs> ben Mazur, thank you so much for coming on healthcare unfiltered yeah thank you so much for having me Well, folks, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for being part of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got to know a little bit about this company and its CEO if you were not already aware of it. Please visit my website, chadinabhan.com. Check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Hilker Unfiltered. And let me know what you think about the podcast. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, or send me an email to shadinabhan.oo at outlook.com. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your loyalty. And if you are a loyal listener, you have to text me, tweet at me, or email me. And I promise you a t-shirt of Healthcare Unfiltered. And you get to choose black or gray, by the way. Before I let you go, I am going to leave you with a saying by Isaac Newton. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. Until next time, take care.